Section 13 of Old and New Masters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. Chapter 7. Browning, the Poet of Love. Browning's reputation has not yet risen again beyond a half-tide. The fact that two books about him were published during the war, however, suggests that there is a revival of interest in his work. It would have been surprising if this had not been so. He is one of the poets who inspire confidence at a time when all the devils are loosed out of hell. Browning was the great challenger of the multitude of devils. He did not achieve this optimism by ignoring Satan, but by defying him. His courage was not merely of the stomach, but of the daring imagination. There is no more detestable sign of literary humbug than the pretense that Browning was an optimist simply because he did not experience sorrow and indigestion as other people do. I do not mean to deny that he enjoyed good health. As Professor Phelps of Yale says in a recent book, Robert Browning, How to Know Him, he had a truly wonderful digestion. It was his firm belief that one should eat only what one really enjoyed, desire being the infallible sign that the food was healthful. My father was a man of bonne fourchette, said Barrette Browning to me. He was not very fond of meat, but he liked all kinds of Italian dishes, especially with rich sauces. He always ate freely of rich and delicate things. He would make a whole meal of mayonnaise. Upon which the American professor comments with ingenuous humour of a kind rare in professors in this hemisphere. It is pleasant to remember that Emerson, the other great optimist of the century, used to eat pie for breakfast. The man who does not suffer from pie will hardly suffer from pessimism, but, as Professor Phelps insists, Browning faced greater terrors than pie for breakfast, and his philosophy did not flinch. There was no other English writer of the nineteenth century who to the same degree made all human experiences his own. His poems are not poems about little children who win good conduct prizes. They are poems of the agonies of life, poems about tragic severance, poems about failure. They range through the virtues and the vices with the magnificent boldness of Dostoevsky's novels. The madman, the atheist, the adulterer, the traitor, the murderer, the beast, are portrayed in them side by side with the hero, the saint, and the perfect woman. There is every sort of rogue here, halfway between good and evil, and every sort of half-hero, who is either worse than his virtue or better than his sins. Nowhere else in English poetry, outside the works of Shakespeare and Chaucer, is there such a varied and humorous gallery of portraits? Landor's often quoted comparison of Browning with Chaucer is a piece of perfect and essential criticism. Since Chaucer was alive and hale, no man hath walked along our roads with steps so active, so inquiring eye, or tongue so varied in discourse. For Browning was a portrait painter by genius, and a philosopher only by accident. He was a historian even more than a moralist. He was born with a passion for living in other people's experiences. So impartially and eagerly did he make himself a voice of the evil as well as the good in human nature, that occasionally one has heard people speculating as to whether he can have led so reputable a life as the biographers make one believe. To speculate in this manner, however, is to blunder into forgetfulness of Browning's own answer in How It Strikes a Contemporary to All Such Calumnies on Poets. Of all the fields of human experience, it was love into which the imagination of Browning most fully entered. It 
may seem an obvious thing to say about almost any poet, but Browning differed from other poets in being able to express not only the love of his own heart, but the love of the hearts of all sorts of people. He dramatised every kind of love, from the spiritual to the sensual. One might say of him that there never was another poet in whom there was so much of the obsession of love and so little of the obsession of sex. Love was for him the crisis and test of a man's life. The disreputable lover has his say in Browning's monologues no less than Count Gismond. Porphyria's lover, mad and a murderer, lives in our imaginations as brightly as the idealistic lover of Christina. The dramatic lyric and monologue in which Browning set forth the varieties of passionate experience was an art form of immense possibilities, which it was a work of genius to discover. To say that Browning, the inventor of this amazingly fine form, was indifferent to form, has always seemed to me the extreme of stupidity. At the same time, its very newness puzzles many readers even today. Some people cannot read Browning without note or comment, because they are unable to throw themselves imaginatively into the eye of each new poem. Our artistic sense is as yet so little developed that many persons are appalled by the energy of imagination which is demanded of them before they are reborn, as it were, into the setting of his dramatic studies. Professor Phelps's book should be of a special service to such readers because it will train them in the right method of approach to Browning's best work. It is a very admirable essay in popular literary interpretation. One is astonished by its insight even more than by its recurrent banality. There are sentences that will make the fastidious shrink, such as the commercial worth of Pauline was exactly zero, and there, the Brownings, love letters reveal a drama of noble passion that excels in beauty and intensity the universally popular examples of Heloise and Abelard, Orcasin and Nicolette, Paul and Virginia. And again, in the story of the circumstances that led to Browning's death, in order to prove to his son that nothing was the matter with him, he ran rapidly up three flights of stairs, the son vainly trying to restrain him. Nothing is more characteristic of the youthful folly of aged folk than their impatient resentment of proffered hygienic advice. Even the interpretations of the poem sometimes take one's breath away, as when, discussing the lost mistress, Professor Phelps observes that the lover, instead of thinking of his own misery, endeavours to make the awkward situation easier for the girl by small talk about the sparrows and the leaf buds. When one has marvelled one's fill at the professor's phrases and misunderstandings, however, one is compelled to admit that he has written what is probably the best popular introduction to Browning in existence. Professor Phelps's book is one of those rare essays in popular criticism which will introduce an average reader to a world of new excitements. One of its chief virtues is that it is an anthology as well as a commentary. It contains more than 50 complete poems of Browning quoted in the body of the book, and these include not merely short poems like Meeting at Night, but long poems such as Andrea del Sarto, Caliban on Setbos, and Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came. This is the right kind of introduction to a great author. The poet is allowed as far as possible to be his own interpreter. At the outset, Professor Phelps quotes in full Transcendentalism and how it strikes a contemporary as Browning's confession of his aims as an artist. The first of these is Browning's most energetic assertion that the poet is no philosopher concerned with ideas rather than with things, with abstractions rather than with actions. 
His disciples have written a great many books that seem to reduce him from a poet to a philosopher, and one cannot protest too vehemently against this dulling of an imagination richer than a child's in adventures and in the passion for the detailed and the concrete. In Transcendentalism, he bids a younger poet answer whether there is more help to be got from Jacob Boehm with his subtle meanings. Or some stout mage like him of Habelstadt, John, who made things Boehm wrote thoughts about. With how magnificent an image he then justifies the poet of things as compared with the philosopher of thoughts. He, with a look you, vents a brace of rhymes, and in there breaks the sudden rose herself. Over us, under, round us, every side, nay, in and out the tables and the chairs and musty volumes, Boehm's book and all, buries us with a glory, young once more, pouring heaven into this poor house of life. One of the things one constantly marvels at as one reads Browning is the splendid aestheticism with which he lights up prosaic words and pedestrian details with beauty. The truth is, if we do not realise that he is a great singer and a great painter, as well as a great humorist and realist, we shall have read him in vain. No doubt his phrases are often as grotesque as jagged teeth, as when the mourners are made to say in a grammarian's funeral. Look out if yonder be not day again, rimming the rock row. Reading the second of these lines, one feels as if one of the mourners had stubbed his foot against a sharp stone on the mountain path. And yet, if Browning invented a harsh speech of his own far common use, he uttered it in all the varied rhythms of genius and passion. There may often be no music in the individual words, but there is always, in the poems as a whole, a deep undercurrent of music as from some hidden river. His poems have the movement of living things. They are lacking only in smooth and static loveliness. They are full of the hoofbeats of Pegasus. We find in his poems, indeed, no fastidious escape from life, but an exalted acceptance of it. Browning is one of the very few poets who, echoing the Creator, have declared that the world is good. His sense of the goodness of it, even in foulness and in failure, is written over half of his poems. Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came is a fable of life triumphant in a world tombstoned with every abominable and hostile thing. A world, too, in which the hero is doomed to perish at devilish hands. Whenever one finds oneself doubting the immensity of Browning's genius, one has only to read Child Roland again to restore one's faith. There never was a landscape so alive with horror as that amid which the night travelled in quest of the dark tower. As detail is added to detail, it becomes horrible as suicide, a shrieking progress of all the torments, till one is wrought up into a very nightmare of apprehension and the tower itself appears, the round squat tower, blind as the fool's heart. Was there ever such a pause and gathering of courage as in the verses that follow in which the last of the knights takes his resolve? Not see, because of night, perhaps? Why, day came back again for that. Before it left, the dying sunset kindled through a cleft. The hills, like giants at a hunting, lay, chin upon hand, to see the game at bay. Now stab and end the creature, to the heft. Not here, when noise was everywhere, it tolled, increasing like a bell. Names in my ears, of all the lost adventurers, my peers, how such a one was strong, and such was bold, and such was fortunate, 
Yet each of old lost, lost, One moment knelled the woe of years. There they stood, ranged along the hillside, met, To view the last of me, a living frame for one more picture. In a sheet of flame I saw them, and I knew them all. And yet, dauntless, the slughorn to my lips I set, and blew. Child Roland to the dark tower came. There, if anywhere in literature, is the summit of tragic and triumphant music. There, it seems to me, is as profound an imaginative expression of the heroic spirit as is to be found in the English language. To belittle Browning as an artist after such a poem is to blaspheme against art. To belittle him as an optimist is to play the fool with words. Browning was an optimist only in the sense that he believed in what Stevenson called the ultimate decency of things, and that he believed in the capacity of the heroic spirit to face any test devised for it by inquisitors or devils. He was not defiant in a fine attitude like Byron. His defiance was rather a form of magnanimity. He is said, on Robert Buchanan's authority, to have thundered no when in his later years he was asked if he were a Christian. But his defiance was the defiance of a Christian, the dauntlessness of a knight of the Holy Ghost. Perhaps it is that he was more Christian than the Christians. Like the Pope in the ring and the book, he loathed the association of Christianity with respectability. Some readers are bewildered by his respectability in trivial things such as dress. Into failing to see his hatred of respectability when accepted as a standard in spiritual things. He is more sympathetic towards the disreputable suicides in apparent failure than towards the vacillating and respectable lovers in The Statue and the Bust. There was at least a hint of heroism in the last madness of the doomed man. Browning again and again protests, as Blake had done earlier, against the mean moral values of his age. Energy to him, as to Blake, meant endless delight, and especially those two great energies of the spirit, love and heroism. For though his work is not a philosophic expression of moral ideas, it is an imaginative expression of moral ideas, as a result of which he is, above all, the poet of lovers and heroes. Imagination is a caged bird in these days. With Browning, it was a soaring eagle. In some ways, Mr. Conrad's is the most heroic imagination in contemporary literature. But he does not take this round globe of light and darkness into his purview, as Browning did. The whole earth is to him shadowed with futility. Browning was too lyrical to resign himself to the shadows. He saw the earth through the eyes of a lover till the end. He saw death itself as no more than an interlude of pain, darkness and cold before a lover's meeting. It may be that it is all a rapturous illusion, and that after we have laid him aside and slept a night's broken sleep, we sink back again naturally into the little careful hopes and infidelities of every day. But it seems to me that here is a whole heroic literature to which the world will always do well to turn in days of inexorable pain and horror such as those through which it has but recently passed. End of section 13